Welcome to the Supermom is Getting Tired podcast. This show is designed for moms who invest everything into parenting, but get overwhelmed, lost, and resentful. Listen and learn how to unburden yourself, feel calm, full of energy, and in control. I'm your host, Master Certified Life Coach, Teacher, and Recovering Supermom, Tori Henderson. You are listening to the Supermom is Getting Tired podcast. I'm your host, Tori Henderson, and I'm here today with a special guest. I'm very excited to have Dr. Dan Peters here with me today. Hi, Dan. Hi, Tori. Dr. Dan Peters is a psychologist and author and co-founder of Parenting Footprint, a podcast and an online community with the mission, which I love, which is to make the world a more compassionate and loving place, one parent, one child at a time. Dr. Dan is an author, speaker, and contributor to many books and articles related to parenting, family, giftedness, twice exceptionality, dyslexia, and anxiety. He's a local boy (laughs) right here in Walnut Creek with me. He's co-founder and executive director of the Summit Center in Walnut Creek. And I think you have another location too, don't you? Uh, We have a few other satellite offices um, around the Bay and then one in Southern California. Okay. So here here in Northern California and one in Southern California that specialize in the assessment and treatment of children, adolescents, and families with special emphasis on gifted, talented, and creative individuals and families, as well as anxiety. So your name came up on my podcast interview with Debbie Reber. Mm-hmm. And I, we mentioned you that you also have a summer camp for gifted youth. And that's what, so I thought I should have Dr. Dan on. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Yeah. So I would love to start off with, you know, I think most people are familiar with some of the words that I mentioned that you specialize in. Mm-hmm. I think most most of my mom most of my moms know firsthand what anxiety is and feels like. <laughs> and giftedness, I think we have a pretty clear idea. But I'd like for you to kind of de- define some of these terms. Like how does giftedness, dyslexia, and twice exceptionality, which is a new term for a lot of people, uh, how do those tend to show up in kids when parents don't know that their kids might have them? And what are some of the signs that they might have a kid with some of these things? Okay. So we'll start broader and then we'll work our way to deeper specific. Yes, I got some very specific questions yeah, for you. So, so in the big picture, let's talk about first the idea of gifted, which will front load with the idea like that is not always a name or a word or a label that people love and accept because it has all of these connotations with it. Like, like this child is better or more special and that's not what it's meant to mean. The idea of giftedness there's a couple ways of looking at it. In one aspect, you're looking at it with a child that has advanced development or advanced developmental potential. So what you get is often kids that may talk early, be highly verbal, have strong attention spans and are actually taking in the world at an early age, really strong memory, learning all this stuff before you're even teaching it to them. Um, might be reading early, might be doing math or on nuances, strong social justice. There's all of these different characteristics which, which lean towards advanced development relative to the norm. And there is a whole continuum within gifted from regular gifted, which called moderately gifted to 
to highly, to exceptionally, to profoundly gifted. And all of that is like the higher one ticks on the intellectual scale, sort of the farther one is from what is considered neurotypical or developmentally expected. And so besides all of those advanced characteristics, what we often see with gifted development is two other words, bright, or excuse me, intensity and sensitivity. And what I was about to say is usually the trifecta that we hear from parents who don't know about these labels is like, okay, my kid seems really bright, they're really intense, and they're really sensitive. And that combination can be a handful, uh, particularly when there's certain expectations in the daycare or on a soccer field or at a performance studio or in other play dates. Often these kids are seemingly different and parents of these kids don't really know what to tell other people because it feels like you're bragging or like you're just making this stuff up about their development. But at the same time, they can be really difficult because of that intensity. So that's that's the that that's just a quick overview of the the giftedness label. And then I'm going to go to the label of twice exceptionality which a lot of people don't know about and is getting more attention these days. Those of us who went to school for psychology or education, medicine, no one here very few people get this training. And so if you think about a bell curve and you think about the tail end of the bell curve where it's like the kids with the advanced development. So they're at like the highest, let's say top two, three, four, five percent or so. And then we look at the other end of the bell curve. And on the other end of the bell curve would be someone that has a challenge area. So they have challenges with attention and executive functioning, sometimes called ADHD, or they have challenges with reading, sometimes called dyslexia, or with fine motor dysgraphia, or sensory processing, or auditory processing, or autism spectrum disorder. Those are the other exceptionalities. So this myth about gifted is... You know, if you're smart, you're smart and everything's easy. Total myth. Because you can be very bright and advanced and have a challenge area. So that's where twice exceptionality comes in. And for most of us who work in the field and are raising these people, we know it's not usually twice exceptional. There's usually multi-exceptionalities there. Right. And so for all my super moms who are listening out there, I want you to hear that. So just because your son can do, I don't know, read a novel in first grade does not mean that he can also remember to turn in his homework assignments or remember how to hang up his backpack. Because I think that's what I hear so much is like, if he's so smart, why can't he just clear his plate off the table, right? Like, it seems like that's basic and that's complicated. He can handle complicated. He should be able to handle basic. And they just don't go together. You're so right. And so from a statistical uh, terminology, which might be too fancy, but we think of that as an almost an inverse correlation. You're higher on one and you're lower on the other. So when you think about the stereotype for the absent-minded professor, mm-hmm. just rewind about 30 years and that's your child, right? So the person that can solve the complicated stuff has trouble with the simple stuff. And Tori, another word I want to give all the listeners that I learned when I came into this subfield is the idea of asynchronous development or developmental asynchrony, which is these kids so often... So let's say you have a five-year-old and they're reading at an eighth grade level and they have math down at a ninth grade level and they have handwriting like a four-year-old and they have the emotional 
regulation abilities of a three-year-old. That is really common with gifted kids, even the ones that aren't necessarily twice exceptional. We just have these different levels of development that aren't even. Right. Mm-hmm. I see it all the time. And I, I, that's a, it's a word that I love to use, that asynchronous development, because it is, it's, we have just a, a preconceived idea of how kids are supposed to behave. And then we kind of see that like, wow, they rode a bike at age three, or they taught themselves to read at age four. Like my kid is smart. And we kind of want to like label it. And that sometimes we, that can get us into stuck and get us into trouble because we don't recognize that along with advanced also comes some delays often, not always, but often. Yes. Yes. And the other thing that you just made me think of is so often with these kids, we say at this age, they should be able to do X, Y, and Z. And that's probably true. I did it with my kids. And, it, and finally, I realized when our, we were having regular morning disasters on the way to school, like, you know what, maybe I should start listening to some of the things I tell my own clients in these situations, which is, which is just because they should developmentally what the books say doesn't mean they're ready. And we need to scaffold and support them through going down the hall and getting their socks on, knowing they're going to get sucked into Legos and you're going to be late and everyone's going to be screaming at each other again. So we just have to look at their individualized development. Yes, I think that's one of the, probably the thing that keeps my clients stuck the most is what I call arguing with reality, where like, he should be able to just get up, get dressed, eat breakfast, get in the car. Like it should not be a battle every morning. Why is he wrestling with his brother? Why is he playing with Legos? He knows that this is the routine that we do. And when we argue with him, we're like, he shouldn't be acting this way. Then it just kind of keeps us stuck in that same cycle instead of saying, okay, maybe he's not capable. Maybe he's not ready. And you know, that just to kind of accept that this is where we are today and to start from that place. Right, right. I'm also thinking about, you said the dyslexia word, just to fully answer your question. And so when we think about the exceptionalities, um, the challenges on the other end of the bell curve, just to have that visual in our minds. So dyslexia is one of these challenges, which it seems like a fair amount of um, gifted individuals have this thinking pattern. And dyslexia is basically a, there's a few ways of looking at it. There is the the usual way of what we think about with dyslexia, which is challenges with reading, challenges with writing, often challenges with rote memory and memorization for sequential or meaningless facts like capitals and presidents and formulas. Um, you can also have some auditory and executive functioning challenges that go with that profile. You can also have, again, these like math, rote math uh, challenges with the dyslexic profile. And so it makes those basic aspects of learning to read and write and do math at school very challenging despite having average to above average or beyond intelligence. And the other flip I want to make is how we really are talking about dyslexia in a different way and colleagues who wrote The Dyslexic Advantage, Drs. Brock and Fernet Eide, and also they have this great website, dyslexicadvantage.org, is they have really done, they, they consolidated research and through all of their clinical experience of showing there are all of these strengths that the dyslexic mind has, which I can get into if you would like at another point. But what's so key is when we're talking about 
gifted and twice exceptional individuals. You just want to focus on those strengths. And what happens is as parents and our worries about our kids and their development and how do they stay ahead in this competitive global economy, um, go and get to a great school. Like there's so much emphasis on weak, uh, you know, shoring up the weaknesses, which is important to a point, but often we lose sight on the child's natural ability and passions and talents. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, I think that's a great. And so that's the dyslexia advan- advantage. Is that what you said? It was? Yes. Dyslexicadvantage.org. So and I'll there put is that in the show notes. And then mm-hmm. you've also recommended a documentary about dyslexia. What was, do you remember the oh, name of that? Oh, right. So there is a documentary called Dyslexia. I believe it's called The Big Picture. And it's something like dyslexia, colon, the big picture. And they interview Charles Schwab, Richard Branson. And I believe that it is, um, it might even be Robert Redford's grandson is featured in it. And it might be that his son actually filmed it. And so, and it takes place, actually, a documentary takes, a lot of it takes place in Marin. Uh, So it's a really, it's just, it's a great, it's a great description of dyslexia and empowering. Awesome. Yeah, we need we need that, right? We need to have because when you're in the school, usually where it shows up first is in the schools because schools are designed for neurotypical kids. And so if your kid is on either end of the spectrum, it's going to usually show up there. And then we kind of have this very narrow frame of reference of like, oh, okay, so my job is to like you're saying, fill in the gaps, focus on the shore up the weaknesses, and we forget to look at the big picture of like how you know, this can be an incredible gift. And your child has all these like skills and talents that aren't really recognized in our typical school system, or this is not designed to notice how intuitive your child is, or how empathic or all these like other qualities. And kind of we want to be able to look at the big picture and see how that sensitivity can be a wonderful asset. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Nice. So I've got some questions here from some of my clients who uh, have kids who fit into one of these categories. And when I was offering, I said, okay, do you have any questions for Dr. Dan? The one that came up the most was, how do you deal with angry outbursts? Mm-hmm. And so I'll give you an example. One of my clients, her son has he's kind of locked into this idea that his life was perfect until his sister was born. Yes. And so if his sister wins an award, which is what happened at school, he just loses it. I hate her. I want to kill her like really over the top anger and really thinks that he's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Any advice for a mom dealing with a situation like that? Yeah, that's that is a tough one, and that is not uncommon with these intense kids who tend to be again more firstbornish and more on the perfectionistic sort of like have to feel like they have to be at the top or there's less personal worth. And so I'm thinking about this from a couple perspectives. First, when I think about Tina Bryson and Dan Siegel's work with brain-based parenting, the first thing that we want to try to do is help the child calm down and soothe. Like number one is trying to hang in there with them and reflect back to them. I see how upset you are. I know it's really hard when she wins an award. 
I know this is really hard for you. I understand. Like you first want to just, you're trying to validate and get that nervous system and that limbic system back online. And you know, it's kind of like a seizure sometimes in the sense, you know, your kid, like it runs its course. And so you're just doing your best not to address it at a cognitive level. And you're trying to calm them down and know that when, again, that limbic system, that emotional part of the brain is activated, there's not going to be any learning or teaching that you can do. Right. I kind of like thinking of it as a seizure, like some sort of like medical brain state that will is temporary. And, and so then it kind of helps you like not pay attention to the words so much. Exactly. Exactly. So I like that too, because when I, we think of the visual of what do we do when our child, if a child has a seizure, well, all you're trying to do is keep them safe and move away furniture that they might hit themselves on and just keep it safe and let run its course. And it could be a two minute, a one minute, two minute seizure, or sometimes, gosh, it could be like 15 minutes. And we're just then after, what are we doing? We're hugging them and telling them they're okay. And so the, the, the first point is just trying to empathize and validate and help them calm down. Because over time, we're wanting to teach them to have these skills themselves, but these kids don't have them yet. And, and nor do they necessarily care to have them when they're young. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm upset. I'm going to let you I'll just let it out. Like, that would be great, right? If, if adults could continue to do that throughout life, like just let it out. But so a lot of kids don't care not to. So once we can have him calm, then it's picking the moment to have the discussions of, gosh, it must be so hard to feel so bad when something else happens good to your sister. And we want to help you learn to deal with it because there's enough good things to happen for everyone. You know, and it's like you're you're slowly trying to get to the cognitive with the child if it's if if he's able to. Why do you think would you be upset if your friend got that award? Would you be and like so you're trying like Socratic method? I, I find works so well with these with these. So what I need to articulate is so with with bright kids, their strength is their generally their intellect and their problem solving and their reasoning. We want to help teach, we want to teach them social and emotional lessons through their intellectual lens, because they're often able to process it that way when they're not activated emotionally, like through reasoning, the Socratic method. How would you feel if I got an award? How about if Johnny got an award? How do you think your sister would feel if you got an award? Gosh, it's just so how there must be something that really triggers that emotion part of your brain when something happens to your sister. I imagine that's really hard. And you're trying to do what I like. I had a supervisor once who talked to me about, taught me about the Columbo approach. Remember Columbo? Yeah. And how he would just, he, what he would do is he would come over to someone, kind of nestle up next to them in a non-threatening way, plant a little seed, Make them think and then walk away instead of totally engage with them and bring up their hackles. <laughs> right. And and also maybe be attached to like having a resolution. Maybe just planting a seed is enough and just kind of, you know, because really what we're, we're, you're work, we're working towards here is, you know, shifting into that growth mindset out of this perfectionistic black and white thinking. If she has one, I can't have any. 
it sounds like the, the more you kind of can bring in some of this, you know, gray, thinking in the gray instead of the black and white into just like everyday conversations of like, yeah, wouldn't that be great if we won every award that's ever been given, <laughs> you know? And yeah, that's, you know, but it doesn't, you know, like, can we still be happy even if we get one? <laughs> so kind of, you know, just playing around with that idea in a very casual, relaxed way. Yes. Like. Yes. Yes. And I, the other thing you said, which I really like is we do not have to resolve it in the moment. And most of the time we can't usually when we're mm. trying to resolve something in the moment, we actually make it worse because we're trying to get somewhere quicker while our child's brain is not yet ready to hear what we have to say. And even if they disagree with it when they're calm, that could be a very different discussion than disagreeing with it when they're already upset. So it's really about just trying to stay present, validate, soothe, and then wait for the moment to have the follow-up conversations. Mm -hmm. And and what I could say from having now older kids, um, older adolescents, young adults, is my greatest parenting moments have been when I took several hours to a day to think about coming back around how to approach a tough situation with them in a way that they would not be defensive and would listen and be open to a conversation. And right. And conversely, my worst moments are when I don't do that. Um, so we really have to look at a, a longer, a longer view, I think with these situations. Yeah. For me, my big trigger was like, if I ever felt like urgent, like yeah, I have to talk to him right now, like, yeah. you know, I've got to get this off my chest. That was always a sign that like <laughs> I was resisting my own emotions and I'm in my emotional brain. Like I need you to act differently and feel differently so that I can feel differently. And so that doesn't really work. And so what I learn to do agree thinking about it first is very helpful and it's just to like for me it was mostly like if i felt that sense of urgency of like i've got to talk to him right now this is not okay then that was my sign not to talk to my child (laughs) right i think that's wise that's wise and then yeah. the other t- tip I think I started doing was um, if I wanted to have a discussion and I kind of knew what I wanted to say or how I wanted it to go is I would come into, this is my teenager, I'd come into his room and I would lay down on the floor because I knew that would be like a very physical reminder that I am not going to lecture. I do not know more than him. That was like putting myself in this physically receptive position of like, I don't know, I'm just hanging out. What are you doing? You know, it just reminded me to not think I know everything and he needs to change and all that stuff. So I like that approach. (laughs) I needed the reminder Mm -hmm. because it's just too easy, you know, to get almost like excited. I'm like, oh yeah, and you could do this and you should do that. And like, it wasn't always negative. Sometimes it was just like me being enthusiastic about all the ways in which he could change. <laughs> totally. Now, well. now, now, yeah, would be all, great. Yeah, now is great. And, and it, it, what you're saying also makes me think about how much we as parents need to be aware of how much of what we're doing or what we want to say, or how we want to resolve this is due to our own anxiety and need in the situation oh, so just much. to like get this thing done or call this coach or call this teacher or because it's our need versus our what's best for our child. 
So much. That's really what I do with parents is that we, especially, especially when that got the teenagers for some reason are the bigger trigger, because I think we uh, tend to futurize and catastrophize mm-hmm, for so sure. When your kid, this is a client who has this question for you. All he wants to do is play video games all day long. He definitely has, he's got the twice exceptional thing going on. He's got executive functioning delays. He's 16 and left to his own devices. He will play 12 hours of video games. And mom is looking for words of wisdom and advice. I've kind of coached her down off the ledge. So she's not in this, like, he's going to be on my couch and a bum forever or homeless in the street, or I'm going to, she's kind of, we're, we're back down from that place. And now she's like, okay, like what's just an effective parenting strategy when he's 16, he's six, four, like he's just, this. <laughs> I think there's something too, when they get bigger than you that you're like, I can't just take away his toys, you know, or can I, or should I? And there's just a lot of questions there. Okay. So the first thing I think of, not to compare to this kind of greatness, but um, so Bill Gates and Bill, uh, Bill Joy, of, who founder of Sun Microsystems, they both were known to program up to 16 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And we could say that that was a bit excessive and that they were a little too into their new big mainframe computers because they were both where there happened to be these big mainframe computers. And we know what happened with both of those companies. So on the one hand, I know all of our kids who are playing lots of, of video games are not going to turn into that. But there's a lot of questions we need to be asking when we see how much of a challenge or a problem is this. So one is, is our child engaged in daily life outside of all of the gaming? Like, are they going to school or if homeschooled doing school? Do So that's one big thing. Are they, what are the parameters around sleeping, right? Are they able to unplug and can they get a reasonable night's sleep? What are the rules about when the thing shuts off, knowing it's still going to be later than you want with a 16-year-old, but there's a lot of compromise that needs to happen. That's another question. The other question is, are they online engaging with other people who they call their friends versus just playing alone? Because we are in this new millennium where long playdates are happening virtually. They don't happen. I mean, still for a lot of kids face-to-face, but a lot of them are happening virtually. We also need to look at how good we think our child is at this game because a lot of the twice exceptional and gifted kids are actually uh, experts at their game and are commanding the game and leaders in the game and are looked as go-to people in the game and when campaigns start they can't get off because of the whole blah blah blah. like these are all the other thing is when we're on screens is it always games or is it also reddit is it also um documentaries is it always gaming because a lot of times we assume it's always gaming when these kids are absorbing information in so many ways so i think a lot of it has to do with functionality um when we look at whether someone's quote addicted in any level every area of addiction it's like is it impacting functionality in the multiple areas of life and the other thing is to we really want to as much as possible collaborate with a teenager young adult the Ross Green collaborative problem solving approach about hey here's what i'm seeing here's what my concerns are 
What do you think about that? I'm concerned you're playing too much at the expense of other things. I'm concerned you're not getting enough sleep. I, as a parent, have only two more years where I can have some way to guide you while you're living here as long as you want to live here. And so I'm coming from a place of health. What do you think about that? And then some, again, lying down on the floor technique, as you said, Tori, it's like sometimes you get, well, yeah, you know, I'm playing a lot, but you know what? My friends play way more. Or, yeah, I don't think I'm playing that much. Or I'm playing the right amount. Or why are you on me when I'm getting straight A's and I'm going to school and everything else is boring? And so it's more trying to have these discussions as long as you can and coming up with, hey, could we try this? How would this work for you? So you come from a place, particularly with someone this age, and, and a bright person who really needs that respect to, um, to collaborate of trying to do this give and take. And because you're trying to train them to do this stuff on themselves just a few years down the road. Right. So it really comes back to what you're saying is like more about planting a seed than it is about coming to you know, a kind of a resolution right now. It's some kind of rule and boundary and, and like, okay, from now on, we're not going to do video games after 9 PM or whatever, that it's really more about like, let's, let me just help you see that I am here to partner with you. Like I'm here to be your support. Like I just said this to my daughter, it kind of surprised her. She was, uh, I said, do you, cause she's had control over her cell phone. She sleeps with it. Like so many teenagers do. She's 15. You know, she's gets, like you're saying, she gets good grades. She engages with life. She plays a sport. She has friends and she, you know, uses her phone a lot. And especially at night. And I just kind of said like, Hey, I just want you to know that like, I'm here to support you. If you ever feel like the phone is getting in the way of your sleep, or you feel like it's keeping you anxious, you know, we know that girls and social media and anxiety rates, like all go hand in hand. And like, if you feel like you're starting to do some of that compare and despair, or, you know, keeping, you know, feeling left out, whatever, like I'm happy to help partner with you to, reduce your because it's kind of nice to have somebody else who says like you know i've done this before like here <laughs> don't let me eat this basically as i hand him the seized candies box you know like right, right, take right. these away from me i don't want to see them and so like to think of like mom is like okay if you ever feel like the phone's too much and it's taken over you can hand it to me and say here mom take this from me so that i'm not tempted to use it at night because i really don't think it's helping like i thought I think we can kind of offer that to them and remind them that like we're here is like, you know, to, to help you in support of your goals. Totally. I love that. I love that. I think teenagers too tend to like really look at like their identity, right? Like, do I want to be the kind of person who, you know, needs their cell phone to fall asleep is always texting instead of looking people in the eye. Cause they see that at school, right. That they can't have a conversation and, and they kind of judge people their friends when they're, they feel like their friends are addicted to their cell phone. So we can kind of like help them reflect on like, do I want to be that kind of person, you know, and help them kind of get a vision for who they want to be. Cause I know my son, not to brag, but I believe he's fourth in the world for league of legends Whoa. video game or something that is, like that. That's nuts. That's, 14th, that's I yeah. don't know. He's like, but like no parent ever says that, right? Like just not to brag, but my child is, you know, this like high up level in my video game. Like it's so funny. That's that means he's logging, he's logged some serious time to get to that level over the years. He says that like to go to the next level, maybe he was, I don't know, 
ninth. I don't know what he was. He says, yeah, yeah. in Korea, I'm higher, but in Argentina, yeah. I'm lower. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, he says, in order to go to the next level, he would really have to become like addicted. And he doesn't want to be. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, I don't mm-hmm. want to go to the next level because I could, I imagine what it would do to, to me and then my life. And so not of interest to him. But yeah, it's just wow. so, yeah. such a new world for us. Mm-hmm. We have no frame of reference for it. And I think for a lot of parents, we just get scared. We're like, what is this? What is happening? Am I creating, am I giving my child anxiety by letting her have a phone? You know, am I creating a future homeless person by letting him play video games? Like, it's just so scary because it's just unknown. It is. And I was talking to a client earlier today. They're trying to do, which which sounds, I mean, awesome. And I commend them. Their whole thing was, okay, cell phone in eighth grade. And they are trying to have their, their middle schooler hold out till eighth grade. But the challenge is the, of course, we know, a lot of middle, like by sixth grade, a lot, and most everyone has a smartphone. And so then while it's, I totally agree with let's wait as long as possible for brain development and making good choices and blah, blah, blah. But then you're socially out and you're not part of things and you're different. And like this person said, like, I want to be cool. Like I need this to be cool. And the parents are understandably saying, wait, you need a device to be cool. And I'm like, like, yeah, you, it helps when, when you're in that age. But I mean, but this is that dilemma that we all face in yeah. this world, this experiment we're all living in. Yeah, it is. It is tricky. So I I would love to talk about anxiety in teens and tweens and how it shows up. Because I think a lot of times kids have anxiety and the parents don't realize that that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of the ways the stealthy ways in which anxiety yes. might show up. So there are a number of ways it can show up. Some of the stealthy ways are the stomach aches and the headaches. We call this the somatic um, sensation. So kids who are having their somaticizing, so it's happening in their their body, whether they're constipated, their, uh, their appetite is impacted, their stomach doesn't feel right. They're having these headaches that often can have an anxiety origin. Another way we see it is the nail biting and chewing on clothes. Sometimes that sensory, also that sensory need is another way. And again, like there's all, there's a, there's a reasonable amount of nail biting that people have, but you know, when it's just common and it's excessive and it's to the cuticles and we're concerned about that. Other ways it can be is with utter avoidance. So things that are, everything's like boring or stupid Mm. or, you know, like extreme procrastinations. We often think of that with an executive functioning challenge, like, oh, they just aren't good with time management. But you also can have someone who's avoiding lots of things because they're anxious about it, whether it's schoolwork or a social thing or um, trying something new. Mm -hmm. And, um, the other ones could be excessive questions. Like this is less stealthy now. Like excessive questions. You know, when are you going to be home? What should I wear? Does this look okay? Am I okay? Um, um, what I are I'm you going to try validation? Yes, yes, yes. So a lot of that's just that worry. Um, we all get a lot of these kids who have trouble at bedtime. Their thoughts start racing. They start to have all their worries. They want you to stay in their room for a long time, or they want to sleep with you beyond the years that you thought that would be the case. That's often anxiety and and also very common with the gifted twice exceptional population. 
because of that active mind and that sensitivity. And then we have um, perfectionistic tendencies where everything has to be to the nth degree. There's really short fuse and that little, that low frustration tolerance, never satisfied, really hard on oneself. That is a kind of anxious perfectionistic process. And then here's the one that a lot of people get a lot, but don't see it as anxiety. And that is the, you know, in the fight and the flight, this is the fight. So you have the person who is lashing out and combative and is showing all of this difficult behavior mm-hmm. that could be oftentimes there's anxiety behind that, that is producing the, that emotional dysregulation. And would you, would your advice be the same as you gave before if the anger outbursts are coming from anxiety or just, I mean, it yes. really is the same thing. It's just the it, fight or yeah. flight response. Exactly. Still need someone to be calmed down because anything that you try to dish out is going to come right back at you. Yeah. So labeling that angry outburst as either anxiety or a seizure or something like that could give help give you sympathy and empathy and like not to take it personally, especially if it's like at you directed at you. Right. And I think that could help in the first case too. the sister who's like, what the heck? I just want to learn. Why can't he be supportive? You know, nice brother that you could kind of help her understand like, oh, that's just his brain. He's going into seizure mode or whatever. And it's not, he thinks it's about you, but it really isn't. It's really Yeah. Trying to give that perspective. I am, I'm just thinking about a situation that I stumbled upon a lot of these things. Personally, I stumble upon in moments of exasperation. So with one of our kids who is the perfectionistic child of the family, um, chip off the old block here. And um, we had this, this is years ago, but we had this great like daddy daughter night and we were the only ones home and we stayed up later than we were going to watching a movie and oh, can we watch one more show? And I was super late. I promise I'll go to bed. I promise I'll brush my teeth. I'm like, sure, this is like the best night ever we're having. And then sure enough, that last late show ends and she just turns to me and says, I'm not going to sleep. And I was so beside myself that how did I fall for this? And how could she do this to me? And you know, all this stuff and like, I'm betrayed. She's betrayed my trust. And I'm thinking usually instead of saying all the regular things that I think I would have said, I was so exasperated. I remember just looking up at the ceiling. I just leaned back on the couch and looked up at the ceiling and took deep breaths, not because I was practicing my breathing, but I was literally so exasperated. And within 30 seconds of just silence, she said, fine. And she went into her room, brushed her teeth (gasps) and called me in. Oh my gosh. Accidental. But... Yeah. Accidental. And I'm going to fast forward because this is like three weeks later, she and I somehow are again driving to Tahoe, meeting other people. We get the phone call. Hey, could you stop off and get such and such? And we're in all of this traffic, like the, up at Davis or something. And we had a park because it was a holiday weekend so far away. She says, you know, I'm not getting out of the car. I'm not going in. And I'm like, okay, this is not going to be good because you, if you get kidnapped, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble with your mom. And so <laughs> I said, and I've had to park really far away. And again, I got out and I looked up at the sky. I guess this is my thing, looking up. And I'm just thinking, deep breath, what am I going to do here? Should I leave her? Should I? And then 
I, after that minute of me just giving moments, I look in the back seat and she's putting on her shoes and she gets on, she goes, let's go. Wow. And when I realized in these moments, again, stumbling on this, this is not parenting genius. This is like parenting exasperation <laughs> is the normal parenting thing in my experience would be, Hey, I need you to do this. I need you to think about someone more than yourself. I, you know, like, can you see the situation? Like, it's like, all this parenting stuff we do. Control. I, I need to control. Yeah. Yeah, control. Yeah. So sometimes it's just the space that we have to breathe through it and let them have their emotion and know that part of the reason they're so pissed off is we are always in charge. And even if it's not going our way, we're still in charge. At the end of the day, we are and they don't like it. Yeah, I can remember being a kid and I had some perfectionism and anxiety as a kid. And I remember like any time anybody ever said to me, like, come on, hurry up, we got to go. It made me move slower. And it wasn't like I was trying to be obstinate or anything. It was just the fight or flight response got triggered in my brain. And I'm, I'm a freezer. So any kind of hurry up made me freeze. <laughs> but I can imagine like if my kids were to do that, I would lose it. I'd be like, as soon as I say, hurry up, you stop moving. Like, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> like, so yeah, it makes sense. That's that fight or flight response getting triggered. It gives me like compassion for myself as well as for, you know, my kids when they're doing it, but the fight, you know, cause it's cause I'm not a fighter that it doesn't, when I see my kids fighting, it doesn't equate to me in the same way of like that's anxiety. Mm -hmm. Right. But it, of course it shows up different for different people. Right. So my last question for you is, when is a good time to consider medication? I know so many moms are like, oh, I would never medicate. I don't want to medicate. Like, of course, we all would like our kids to eat organic, healthy foods and, you know, be wonderful children and just like do everything right. The teacher says to do. And I, of course, that's what we want. But somewhere along as they're growing up. When do you think is a time to start considering medication? So it's always a, well, it's not always. So for many, it's a tough decision. For some, it's actually, it's quite an easy decision. They're like, yeah, if this is going to help, let's try it. And it's really interesting because it's totally individual based on the family. And other parents are like, I will never put my kids on medicine. So first of all, I just want to validate that it's a personal choice. What I would say and how I consult families is most people like to try the other interventions and accommodations first, whether it's, okay, let's change the diet a little bit, a little less sugar, let's uh, reduce some caffeine, or in some cases, increase, try some caffeine, depending if it's attention or anxiety. Let's try some things at school with the 504, some accommodations. Let's set up a, a behavior plan at home. Let's go do some counseling. So all of those things are great things to do. Medicine comes into the conversation when despite the things that you've been trying, your child is suffering long enough and getting either enough, having enough negative internal experience and or negative feedback from the environment because of whatever they're dealing with and their behavior and the regulation that it's really impacting their daily life. And when it's impacting their daily life, you, you, we have to be aware like these are the years of identity development and how they view themselves as competent in the world and how people view them. And so I still feel like one should take a thoughtful, careful approach. But at the same time, if you're 
you're having day after day of internal and external struggle that's going on and it's not getting better, that's when I think it's a good idea to get a medication consultation. And for people to hear that just because you go and meet with a developmental pediatrician or a family practitioner or a psychiatrist, you're just getting information. You're starting a process by which someone who is trained can make some recommendations to you. And ultimately, it's your choice whether you decide to go through with the with a potential prescription. Yeah. Very rarely is medication too, like kind of a black and white on and off thing. It's usually like, let's try a super low dose of this and let's see how this goes and let's tweak it here. Like it's really more of a journey than a like on off kind of thing. And I think a lot of parents are like, oh, you know, it's all bad or all good. and. Yeah. And if they take, if they, if their child takes medication, they'll be on it for life. And what I tell everyone is, first of all, that is never the case because every adolescent and or young college students chooses to not take medicine. Like, <laughs> like that's just happens. And so basically why you still have some control and we still want it to be collaborative with people like, Hey, this could be helpful. What do you think about trying this? Um, but the older they get, they take, they take control of it anyways. Yeah. Why do you think that there's so, it seems like the anxiety and even just like the neurodiversity is kind of on the rise in our country. What do you think are some of the biggest reasons for that? That is a big question and a good one. Well, you know, there's all of the the talk about hormones in our foods and pesticides. And the bottom line is when you and I were growing up, there weren't that many or that level. It's just, mm -hmm. it's a change. So there is that, that element of what we're putting into our body and what's in the environment that's going on. Um, that's one thing. There's another line of thinking that the human species is getting more neurodiverse, which the way of, mm. of all of the technology and the way that we are now living with our kids, you know, their brains are being wired differently than ours were. We watched TV and everyone thought our brain was rotting too much Brady Bunch or, um, or um, Baywatch or whatever, whatever the thing was, <laughs> three's, three's company. Um, I watched Brady Bunch. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> We now have kids who are, they have all this information and technology coming at them, which changes the way their brains are being wired. And people are also saying again, that there is more from a um, evolutionary adaption perspective, like these kinds of neurodiverse brains are really adept ultimately for this technology world. So it's kind of like this nature, like always this nature nurture um, environment. But so I feel like that is a little different than the question is why are so many people anxious and depressed? So I'm going to put those two things outside of neurodiversity, even though that you could call that neurodiversity. But I feel like that anxiety and the depression are often consequences of, of just overwhelming situations and information that is coming at our kids and us. We could kind of call it like modern living. Modern, yes. Unfortunately, yes. Because like I went to Costa Rica and it was like amazing. Like everybody was so relaxed, so chill. There's no stimulation. I was in nature all the time. There's no billboards. Like there was just no input. Right. And I just felt so different than I do here in the Bay Area. <laughs> exactly. So I was like, aha, this is a big reason. Mm -hmm. And everybody, nobody's stressed. It's one of the, they rank highest in happiness ratings too. 
So nice. Much higher than us. Yes. <laughs> All right. So I want to leave with like three things parents can do to encourage brain health in their children. Brain health. Okay. One big thing is sleep. We're get, sleep's getting a lot of good press these days. And especially as our kids are getting older and in adolescence, the lack of sleep produces lots of bad stuff like anxiety, depression, irritability, uh, low concentration, attention, executive functioning, all that stuff. So number one is trying to work with your kids on sleep and teaching them at a young age how important it is for their brain. Okay, that's number one. Number two, for brain health, I would say as early as you can, start to teach your kids about how the food they eat actually creates a healthy mind and body. Because again, there's way more crap out there than when we were growing up. And there's way more artificial foods and dyes and sweets. And a lot of these kids actually have blood sugar issues, this reactive hypoglycemia type of stuff, and they need protein. And it's trying to teach them that what they put in their body actually changes the way they feel. So that's number two for brain health. Number three is more of a cognitive approach, which is helping our kids with resilience and helping them understand that the way they think about the situation they're in is the difference between being someone who can move forward and push through and succeed versus someone who gives up, who complains and thinks everything else is someone else's fault. So that th having cultivating this mindset, which many of you know, one way of looking at it is this growth oriented mindset that lots of people are talking about is the idea that I have the ability to problem solve any situation that comes to me versus be a victim of it. Nice. And I'm yeah, calling that sure. resilience. And I like to think that that's like just on like the big picture, this is my own like spiritual philosophy is that the reason we're seeing this increase in anxiety and depression is so that more and more people will come to life coaching, will learn how to manage their brain, will do meditation and mindfulness and like seek out these things because suffering is a great motivator. And when parents start taking charge of their brain and what they're thinking about and, you know, choosing how they want to feel and how they want to react, then the kids will learn from our imitation and they'll learn it just kind of naturally through watching their parents do it. And so I kind of like thinking that there's a silver lining to the increase in anxiety and depression that more and more people are going to start uh, taking charge of their own mental and emotional health. I like that. And I agree with that. <laughs> so it's good. Good stuff yes. out there. Well, thank you so much. This was so awesome to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate your time today. And thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Want a free life coaching session? Go to lifecoachingforparents.com and schedule yours today. And thank you so much for listening. I would love it if you would subscribe and share these podcasts with your friends. If you have a question you'd like me to answer on the air, go to lifecoachingforparents.com slash record my question and you can send me a voicemail recording or write me an email and I'll answer it on the air. Thanks again. Have a great day.